So good morning, MCC. Good morning. morning. Join me in prayer as we uh, look at God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word to us that it tells us everything we need to know. Lord, I pray that that it would be accurately handled this morning, and I pray that its power would go forth and that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in the right way. Pray in Jesus' strong name, amen. If you uh, saw the title of the message in the bulletin when it came in last night, it's, uh, it's called, it's one word, it's imminent. Does everybody know that word? Uh, don't get it confused with imminent, with I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, or eminent, uh, which are very different words, have very different meanings. But imminent basically refers to something that's about to happen. Uh, if you know the word impending, or looming, or close at hand, or, or the more uh, colloquial phrase, just around the corner. But uh, let me just start with this, a little bit of history. If you look into the history of the Evangelical Free Church, that's our denomination, you will definitely encounter the name Dr. Calvin B. Hansen. And Dr. Hansen uh, is one of the, what we call one of the elder statesmen of the Evangelical Free Church in America and Canada and Japan. You'll probably come across some of his books. One of them is called What It Means to Be Free. And it really is one of the go-to books in the free church world. Now, Dr. Hansen came to Japan in 1949 as I believe he was the first Evangelical Free Church missionary sent from the Evangelical Free Church of America. And so he played a very key role in launching the Evangelical Free Church of Japan, which is what MCC is part of. And he was planning for a lifelong career here in Japan, but in January of 1959, they had a carbon monoxide poisoning incident in their home, their Ofuro heater had uh, some, something happened to the chimney. Somebody had bent it or something. So the carbon monoxide backed up into the bathroom. And it nearly took the lives of his wife and three children. I mean, it was a miracle that they survived. It forced them to leave Japan. And, and especially because of his wife's condition, it was so serious. And it took her several years, literally, to recover from that. But uh, long story short, uh, just very soon after they returned to the U.S., he moved actually up to Canada and helped launch what is now known as Trinity Western University. That's really what he's best known for now, especially in the North American side. And by the way, Trinity Western University is where I did my undergraduate work, and so did Dale Little and John Prince as well. So for Dr. Hansen, besides being the progenitor, we call him, of the EFCJ and Trinity Western University, like I say, he was kind of an like elder statesman or a, uh, not one of the founding fathers of the Free Church. He would have to be very old for that. But, you know, I was also privileged to know him uh, in his later years, and I'm just very, very thankful for that. About 10 years ago, I guess it was 11 probably, right? Within the 60th anniversary of the Evangelical Free Church of Japan, I think it was 2009, Dr. Hansen, who was by that time 84 years old, uh, along with his wife, 
was invited to Japan, and they were flown over here, and he was to speak at that anniversary event, the 60th anniversary. Uh, I didn't go to it, I didn't get to go to it, but later that year, when we were back in the U.S., we went to his church in Washington State, which is not too far from where my parents live. And by the way, he planted that church when he was over 80 years old. So I was saying to Ron this morning, Ron, there's a, there's a future career still ahead of you when you go back to Washington. Anyway, we went to his church, and after the service, Cal saw, he always wanted me to call him Cal, so I always call him Cal, but Cal saw us in his church there, and he made a beeline, and he came straight for us after the service was over to tell me what had happened at that 60th anniversary. So he had prepared the message, as he had been asked to do, and of course, as you'd expect, he was asked to send an advance copy so that the translator could go through it and, and prepare, which he did. And then when he got here, he was staying at, at someone's home, a uh, free church member's home. And just a few days before the event, he was out for a walk. And it's a little bit more of a rural area, but he was walking down this road. And I don't know what happened, but something happened to his legs or his back or something. And he was literally unable to walk. So he had to sit down on the side of the road, kind of in this more rural area. So a car stopped, seeing this big foreigner an older man sitting on the side of the road. And I remember he's 84. And uh, they took him back to the house he was staying in. I don't know if they took him to the hospital or what. But anyway, while he was trying to recuperate and get ready for the event, he told me that he came under such a strong conviction. I mean, he said it was unmistakable. It was from the Lord that he was not to speak on the message that he had prepared. And I mean, he knew so clearly that if he had not heeded that, it would have been disobedience. He was not to preach on the message he had prepared, but rather he was to speak to the churches in Japan on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And a couple of interesting things happened. Even though he was uh, still having difficulty walking, he said that uh, on the evening that he was supposed to speak, it was like, rise up and walk. I mean, he, he was able to stand up and walk up the stairs and stride across the stage to the podium. And, of course, the translator now was completely unprepared, didn't have any notes and no prep time. And so the translator had to translate on the fly, real time. And apparently he was struggling with some of the words and some of the vocabulary that Cal was using. So Cal told me that miraculously, some of his 50-year-old Japanese vocabulary started coming back. And he was actually able to help the translator with some of the vocabulary. But when I was talking to him, and I've never forgotten that conversation, because it was obvious that not just the conviction of it and the message, it had a huge impact on him. The crux of that message, church in Japan, the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. And I wasn't there that day. I don't know the specifics of what he preached on, but I'm pretty sure that he referenced Article 11 from our Statement of Faith. That reads, this is Evangelical Free Church of Japan believes in the personal and premillennial and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and that this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of Jesus. 
the believer. And, you know, apart from that conviction that he had had and, and even, you know, the Lord's enabling him to preach like that, I think it's significant that that was Cal Hansen's final message to the church in Japan. And if anything, especially with what's going on in our world, that message is more relevant in 2020 even than it was in 2009. So I think it's good to remind ourselves of these things. And what Takia read this morning, that's exactly what Peter wrote about in his second and final epistle. Now, he wrote it 19 and a half centuries ago. But the last chapter, chapter 3, begins with the importance of being reminded. And that was verse 1 and 2. And then he goes on to write about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, and with that, the destruction of the present heavens and earth, and then the new heavens and new earth. You know, the return of Jesus Christ is, is such a major, such a clear, such a frequent, and such an urgent theme in scripture that there is no way that we can miss it and there's no way that we should miss it. Jesus himself spoke on it very directly. I mean Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, sections of Luke 12, Luke 17, Luke 19, Luke 21. I mean even the John 14 passage that Ron preached on last week I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And the apostles preached on it and wrote about it. I mean, Peter, 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is near. James 5.8, the coming of the Lord is near. Romans 13, Paul speaking of loving one another, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And that's axiomatic, but it makes the point. The night is almost gone and the day is near. And then 1 Corinthians 7, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. And then John, 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, even now, this is 19 and a half centuries ago, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then there's the whole book of Revelation. How many months did we go through Revelation? How many weeks? That book is where the imminent return of Jesus Christ is really pressed home very, very strongly. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then the verse that we recited every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, month after month. Everybody remember it? Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. I'm cheating, I'm reading, sorry. <laughs> For the time is 
near. That's the beginning of Revelation. Here's the end. Chapter 22, five verses. Verse 6. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming. This is Jesus' words. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, and he, now this is the angel speaking to John. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And then verse 12, Jesus' words again, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This is the third time this next phrase has been mentioned, the first two times by the Lord God, and now by Jesus the Lamb. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that's the prayer. And then there's a benediction. Very simple. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. There's no mistaking that wording. His return is imminent. And I know that many of us are thinking, I'm sure many of us were thinking when Ron was going through Revelation, it's been almost a full 2,000 years since those things were written. This raises questions even for sincere believers. There's kind of three questions that I want to look at today. There's no way we're going to get through everything, but bear with me. How do terms like the time is near or coming quickly or soon or the last hour, how do they fit? How do they square? with a 2,000-year delay. And then there's the why. Why such a long delay? And then, of course, the what. What does it mean for us here and now? now? Because our statement of faith says, this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer, that last question is very important. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. If you have a Bible in front of you, I'm using the New American Standard translation, but any translation that you feel comfortable with is fine. Second Peter chapter 3. This is his final epistle, last chapter. We see that Peter anticipated these questions. Tucky already read it through, so let's pick it up from verse 3. Peter writes, Know this first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now implied is that Jesus' coming may not happen as soon as many were expecting it to, to the point that it would actually bring out mockers. And the fact is that Jesus himself hinted very clearly that his coming might well be delayed, and certainly longer than the disciples at that time imagined. 
In fact, Luke writes about this. In Luke 19, uh, he says that while they were listening to these things, Jesus was speaking, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he told them a parable of a nobleman going to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And that's the story where he entrusted his servants with money to work with. Uh, this delay, Jesus hinted at, he very clearly portrayed it in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Remember that story where the virgins were waiting for the bridegroom? And the bridegroom, it says, the bridegroom was delaying to the point that everyone fell asleep. And then in Matthew 25, right after that, the parable of the three servants and the talents. The master returned, it says, after a long time to settle accounts with them. And then the parable of the vineyard in Luke 20. The owner goes away on a long journey for a long time. And then even Jesus' description um, in Matthew 24 and Luke 12, Jesus gives an example of an evil slave who says, my master will be a long time in coming. And he begins to abuse his fellow servants. So the delay is clearly acknowledged in scripture. And we, of course, now who live in this time and place, we know that. But how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile the delay with the clear message of the imminence of his return. So let's continue. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, there are so many things we can pull out of that. I had to throw out about two pages of just really important things that those verses talk about. But let me just highlight this. God created the world out of water and by water, and he destroyed that world in judgment with water exactly as he said he would. In Genesis 6, we read that God told Noah that he would destroy the whole world. He told him why he would do it, he told him how he would do it, and he told Noah exactly what he needed to do to be saved. In fact, Peter, just one chapter back in 2 Peter 2, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So I think we can pretty safely assume that Noah warned people. In fact, it would have been very difficult for people not to notice his ark building project. So those people, we can be pretty sure, were warned. They were told. And both Matthew 24 and Luke 17, it records Jesus saying that his return would be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. God had given his word, the flood was imminent, and he carried out his word, and that world was destroyed. And Noah was saved by faith and obedience to the word of God. 
go to verse 7. And this verse pertains now to the present time. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So as surely as the earth was created and the flood happened by the word of God, and there is no shortage of geologic evidence of that, and all the ungodly were destroyed by water in judgment. In the same way, this earth and all the ungodly will be destroyed by fire in judgment. Verses 8 and 9. And these are the verses that really directly address two of these questions. How can the time is near, coming quickly, soon, last hour, and all those terms, how can they be used while there's such a long delay, and then why has there been such a long delay? And these verses are wonderful. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So one thing is very clear that we need is a proper perspective. God is eternal. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. He transcends time and space. He's not constrained or limited by either one. So days and weeks and months and years and decades and millennia, he works beyond all those things according to his purposes his sovereign, righteous purposes. In fact, there's a repeating refrain in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And then we looked at it back in Revelation, the three times that it's declared, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. So that means really, that successive generations, and even death, the death of those who belong to him, it doesn't change the relationship with him at all. In fact, when Jesus was uh, addressing the Sadducees, they challenged him with a question about resurrection. And he said, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So when the Lord says, I am coming soon, or I am coming quickly, or the time is near, in the grand scheme of things, that is most definitely true. And it's from our narrow, from our shallow, finite, and mortal human standpoint it may seem very long and slow, but then verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. We cannot judge God's schedule by our limited human experience and understanding. And even worse, we don't dare, we don't dare, like those who are faithless or those who mock think that God might somehow be slack or negligent. And it's even more, it's much more 
than just simply having a proper perspective on time and eternity. The reason, the why, for his apparent slowness is because of his kindness. Paul said it's the kindness, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So why the seemingly long delay? And that's the last part of verse 9. But, and I'll put in the he, he is patient toward you. And then one of the most wonderful revelations of God's compassionate heart in all of the Bible. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How could anyone dare, how could anyone dare disparage or mock God's delay? And you know, it, it, we need to point this out because this is not just a New Testament thing. You know, it's really a misreading of Scripture for anyone to think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace or that God the Father is all about judgment and Jesus is all about mercy and tolerance. When God passed before Moses, we see this in Exodus 34. This is what God himself proclaimed about himself. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you don't have to dig very deep into the Old Testament to see this. I mean, from the very beginning, when man fell, God providing, God himself providing coverings for Adam and Eve. And, you know, a lot of people miss this. God delayed the promise to Abraham of the promised land by many hundreds of years. And it says it in one line. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. God had mercy on that godless people. We all know the story of Jonah, Nineveh. God declared destruction in 40 days. But those people, from the king all the way down, they repented, and God withheld judgment. And Jonah, Jonah was upset at God's compassion. They were an enemy people. In fact, even it says, with the extreme, and I mean universal wickedness, the universal wickedness, I mean, except for eight people of the whole world leading up to the flood, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. God is long-suffering. And then there's the nation of Israel. I mean, we've got example after example after example. Many warnings of destruction that God gave them if they turned away from him. Four times in Deuteronomy and one more time in Joshua, he specifically said that they would perish quickly 
and that he would quickly destroy them from the land. But even so, how many hundreds of years was God patient and compassionate with them as they continually turned away from him? And again and again and again, he called them to turn back. And yes, he disciplined them, but he deferred that ultimate judgment of removing them from the land for at least 800 years. And all through the period of the judges, all through the kings, even until the exile of Babylon, God was long-suffering. Listen to what God said in Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, and that's a serious statement, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, and then turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So his delay, his delaying, and even in this present time, his delaying affirms that God is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In fact, just a few verses down, we don't have time to get to it, but Peter says, he uh, exhorts us to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And for that, we need to be very, very grateful to him. But there is more that we need to understand. And uh, for this, I just need to dip down into verse 10. So we just read, if you notice when we read the scripture reading, just the first 11 words of verse 10 were up there. Because... This is also true. But the day of the Lord will come. It will happen. It is imminent. God is mercy and compassion and patience. And, and, it's not but, it's and. He is righteous and just and holy. Holy, holy, holy. And his patience does have a limit. It must have a limit. And he keeps his word. So even though God waited patiently before the flood, he did bring about the flood in his time and, very important, according to his word. And even though he patiently put up with the Amorites, their sin ultimately reached its full measure and Israel drove them out according to God's promise. And even though God withheld judgment from Nineveh, in that generation who repented, Nineveh was eventually overthrown. And even though God was extremely long-suffering throughout Israel's history, his word in Deuteronomy, as well as a whole bunch of other subsequent prophets, his word was carried out. Second Chronicles, let me just read this quick. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 summarizes it like this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. The northern kingdom 
was exiled by Assyria between 724 and 722 BC. The southern kingdom lasted a little longer, but it was exiled to Babylon between 605 and 586 BC. And you know, what's really telling is we see in the book of Jeremiah that even when the Babylonian army was literally on the doorstep of Jerusalem, most of the leaders mocked and persecuted Jeremiah because of his message that God's judgment was imminent. They would not believe it, even then. They even threw him into a pit. They threatened his life. They said he was a traitor. But God's judgment was imminent, and it did happen. And just as surely as Jesus came the first time, According to God's word, all through the Old Testament, God's word. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time came, he came according to God's word. And he will just as certainly come again in the fullness of time in accordance with God's word. And when he comes this time, it will be a day of great salvation. When we were reading through Revelation, the rejoicing, the praise, the hallelujahs, four hallelujahs in Revelation chapter 19. But when you read chapter 19, you see the other side that it will be a day of great judgment on the world. Those who do not know God in accordance with his word. And because of this, when Jesus says that he's coming back quickly and the time is near, that is not exaggeration, it's not bluff or bluster, it is truth. Remember Revelation 22, 6, these words are faithful and true. And there's an urgency to them, both for encouragement and for warning, and we need to take them to heart because his word will be fulfilled and his word will be vindicated. So what does this mean for us here and now? In the 21st century, when we see the world more and more in turmoil, the second half addresses this, but with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, but with MCC, 40 minutes is 40 minutes. <laughs> We are stuck in time and space. So we'll need to come back to this in August. I believe it's August 9th. Is that right? So if you could bear with me until then. And if, in fact, if you could just bear with me just for a few more minutes, because I, I really think we shouldn't miss this. And I, I probably need to screen share this, because it's going to be a lot of scripture. I'm just going to read through this. So just bear with me for a few more minutes. Uh, back in verse 10. Uh, back in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is an aspect of Jesus' return that we cannot overlook because Jesus warned about it so strongly. It can be captured probably in two words, suddenly and unexpectedly. So we're told that his coming is imminent, but we are not told when. So let me just read a few passages here and just listen I mean, it's a very strong exhortation to alertness and readiness and faithfulness. So Matthew 24, starting from verse 36. 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, and listen, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be, we just read this, just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then just a couple of verses down, verse 42. Therefore, and here's the therefore, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason also, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. This is from Mark 13. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. This is serious. These are serious words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And right next, verse 34. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Wow. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We need to take these things to heart. Jesus' own first coming was written about all through the Old Testament, as far back as Genesis 3. And generation after generation was waiting for him to come. In fact, the very last book of the prophets, Malachi, chapter 3, this was written just before 400 years of silence. It was written, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who's that? It's John the Baptist. Listen, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And it happened that way. 
And most of the people missed it. Most of the people missed it. Especially among the leaders. And not just missed it, they rejected him. Even with all their expertise in the law and the prophets, even when the Magi came from the east asking about the birth of the king of the Jews, even the testimonies of Simeon and Anna in the temple after his birth, even with the preaching of John the Baptist, which everyone knew about, who plainly said that he was the forerunner, relatively few were ready for him then. And I pray that we are ready for him now. So let me just close with this for today. This is Paul in Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, and by the way, it wasn't that long ago, the United Nations theme was peace and safety. <laughs> then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. May God bless and use his word to us and may we take it to heart. Lord, again, thank you for your word and its sufficiency. Lord, thank you for your great patience and compassion on your creation. Lord, your patience leads us to repentance. Oh, Lord, may we have hearts that turn to you, that turn to the living God. Lord, may we be, as, as your people, Lord, may we be awake and alert. May we be those who long for your coming. Lord, you said to your apostles before you went to heaven that it is not for us to know the times or the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But Lord, we do have everything that we need and we know that you are coming soon. May we abide in you. May we bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Lord, like, like your word says, I think it's in 1 John 2, it says, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may not shrink away from him in shame. Lord, help us to be those who rejoice at your coming, who've loved your appearing and now who anticipate your return. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.